Hi there. Welcome to The Music's Not a Threat, a podcast about history, culture, and an anarchist pop band called Chumbawamba. Now that we're a couple episodes in, I started to think that since the episodes aren't really going in chronological order, it might be a good idea to establish just a basic Chumbawamba timeline so it's easier to sort of place the songs in context. So just really quickly, let's talk about the history of Chumbawamba through a quick rundown of their 14 studio albums. Fair warning, this is going to be a two-parter. There's a lot to cover here. The first group of people calling themselves Chumbawamba called themselves that sometime around 1982. In those early days, band membership was a little bit flexible and often connected to who was living in their shared squatted house. Fairly early on, they stood out for their extremely theatrical live show with costumes and characters emphasizing their ideological points. Another unique quality was their willingness to play soft, sweet, and quiet sometimes, which could really stand out among the loud, angry screaming. The other thing that stands out, even in their early days, was a certain sense of humor. They released parody charity singles mocking the spectacles of Band-Aid and Fairy Aid. At one point, they posed so successfully as a skinhead oi punk band that they got themselves on a genuine oi compilation with a song consisting of nothing but the phrase I'm thick shouted over and over 60-some times. Revolution record that I talked about in the first episode was released in 1985, focusing on the need for different factions of punks and other would-be revolutionaries to work together in spite of their differences, and also critiquing supposedly rebellious rock and roll for not pushing truly revolutionary ideas. The thing about early Chumbawamba, though, is that they were constantly changing. Their theatrical live show and their songs were constantly being redone and rewritten. So any given Chumbawamba recording from this era said maybe less about them as a whole and more about what was on their minds that week. And while cheesy, simplistic charity singles and supposedly rebellious rock stars had been on their minds already, the decision to theme their entire first album around those topics seems to have been made fairly last minute, in response to the then-current media circus around the massive charity concert Live Aid. Pictures of starving children sell records. Lies, Traditions, Starvation, Charity, and Rock and Roll was their first album, released in 1986. And as you might guess from the title, Pictures of Starving Children Sell Records takes a very cynical view of celebrity charity work and Live Aid in particular, accusing them of being more concerned with rock spectacle and good publicity for the artist than with actually understanding and addressing the root causes of poverty and hunger in the world, reducing it down to just a simple message of buy records, save the world, without asking people to really think about why the world needed saving in the first place. I'm the boss of the company, and I've got hunger working for me. Of course, Chumbawamba did plenty of charity gigs and recordings themselves. The scene was all about those compilation tapes and benefit gigs, raising money and awareness for various causes, from animal rights activism to funds for jailed protesters. What's the difference between that and Live Aid? It's a question for future episodes. A year later, in 1987, their next record was also a concept album written and recorded fairly quickly in response to then-current events, namely, the UK general election. The album is called Never Mind the Ballots, Here's the Rest of Your Life, an obvious pun on the Sex Pistols album, Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. The theatricality and the characters are back, including two political candidates who appear on the first and last tracks, seeming to debate but ultimately being more similar than different. Nationalization with one 
person, but someone in control, of course. Either way, there must be someone getting orders. The album art for this record is a riff on posters from the May 1968 Paris uprisings, including the slogan, The vote changes nothing, the struggle continues. Just like pictures of starving children sell records took a cynical look at Live Aid, this album has a cynical take on elections, and for pretty much the same reasons, that they're overhyped media circuses offering overly simplistic solutions, and that however well-intended the participants, in this case the voters, might be, real social change requires more effort than one vote every few years. Hence, the second half of the title. It's not anti-voting per se, it's just more about what you do with the rest of your life. And what did Chumbawamba do with the rest of their lives? Well, the next year, in 1988, they did something completely different. English Rebel Songs, 1381 to 1914, was not a total departure for the band. Still, it was a little surprising when the next Chumbawamba album was entirely made up of a cappella and acoustic versions of old English folk songs. Of course, not just any folk songs. These are songs celebrating protest and rebellion throughout English history. Your houses they pulled down to fright your men in town But the gentry must come down and the poor shall wear the crown Stand up now, diggers all The band's basic intention was to remind people that punk didn't invent the idea of rebellious music and that rebellion didn't have to sound any one way. It was a good message to be putting out there, as Chumbawamba themselves were about to start sounding very different. There was a fair amount of discussion about whether this was really a punk record, or whether it should be covered by punk publications. An interesting discussion that highlights a lot of different issues around the meaning of punk. But for now, we'll ignore it and move on to Slap, their next album, released in 1990. It's still got some of that punk edge, but the general tone is kind of... funky. The opening track is all bass and wah-wah guitars and trumpets. The dancey, upbeat songs are still about things like the Red Army Faction, Tiananmen Square, American Racism, and the Holocaust. As blatantly political as ever, but the lyrics have gotten a little more opaque and poetic. On their first two albums, the meaning of songs is almost totally transparent. It'd be hard to misunderstand the basic intent of any of the songs on pictures, or never mind the ballads. This is the point where, at least to my ears, the songs start actually needing some level of explanation to even know what they're about, let alone the specific point they're trying to make. I've seen a few punk critics say this is the point where Chumbawamba started to go downhill, where their music got less political. But in my admittedly limited experience, the clarity of Chumbawamba's lyrics on those first two albums was the exception rather than the rule in punk. Because, one, they were very clear about what they meant, and two, you could actually understand the words they were singing. There are very few punk bands who don't fall down on one or both of those counts. All this to say, yeah, from here on out, their lyrics do tend towards the more poetic and less transparently political, and their sound veers hard away from punk. I personally don't count either of those things as a strike against them per se. It's just a point worth noting. Now, Chumbawamba had never shied away from using samples in their music. Slap includes a sample of Elvis' I Can't Help Falling in Love With You, and an early track called The Police Have Been Wonderful credits UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher on vocals, via a sample. But at this point, 1992, the band was getting into the UK rave scene, explaining some of their dancey influences, and they planned an ambitious, sample-heavy album called Jesus H. Christ, which was promptly shut down when they were flatly denied permission to use many of the songs. So they went back to the studio, took the bits and pieces they could salvage of the tracks from Jesus H. Christ, and instead released the album Shh. That's S followed by three H's. Focusing on copyright, censorship, and social taboos in honor of their thwarted plan. Shake my, 
still find bootlegs of the original Jesus H. Christ recordings. They're fine, but I don't think we've really suffered any great loss. Shh, makes a perfectly good album without the sampled bits. A review from the zine Flipside, one of the last punk publications I can find who still reviewed their records at this point, admitted that their politics were still fine, but couldn't stand the record, complaining that it sounded like something you could hear on the radio. Good politics and a sound that people who don't love punk screaming could get into it? I struggle to see the problem here, but I definitely get why Chumbawamba had a hard time sticking with the punk scene at this point. The next album came out in 1994, and it was called Anarchy. The cover is a very graphic photo of a baby being born, taken from a medical textbook. Apparently a number of record stores either refused to sell it or sold it from behind the counter. But for all that the cover is offensive, musically here it's pretty poppy. Mix of 90s pop, 50s pop, and still some hard edges here and there. And a weird mix of really overt politics on songs like Homophobia and Enough is Enough, and barely discernible politics in songs like Georgina and Time Bomb, which was a modest radio hit in the UK. It's a song about a time bomb, sure, but it's so sweet the way that it's sung, you'd be forgiven for not realizing that they might be talking literally. At this point in their career, they also released the live album Show Business, both on its own, and as a double disc release called For a Free Humanity for Anarchy, where the second disc is a talk by social critic Noam Chomsky. Because why not? Next up is 1995's Swingin' with Raymond. Raymond is apparently a real guy, his picture's on the cover, with love tattooed on the knuckles of one hand and hate tattooed on the other. The album is split down the middle, with the first half being relatively soft, poppy love songs, and the second half being loud, bombastic hate songs. This album has some of the loudest and some of the quietest stuff they'd done up to this point. Being conflicted between love and hate is a recurring theme for the band. The love-hate relationship with pop culture is especially prominent being fascinated by it and repulsed by it at the same time. And if you understand that, you'll understand exactly what happened to them next. I get no but that's a story for another time. We've gotten seven albums deep into the 14 that they made, so there's a lot more where this came from. I guess maybe not a lot more, just the same amount again. More. Anyway, transcripts, footnotes, and sources for this episode at musicthreat.net, and contact information if you want to get in touch. Just whatever you do, please... Cite your sources. Thanks for listening.